Okay, let's go ahead and get started. We'll start with a word of prayer here. Welcome, everybody. Dear Lord, we thank you for this uh, Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and uh, to study your word and to learn more about you. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present with us here this morning as we uh, venture into your word and that you would bring new truths and new perspectives of your character of love to our minds. I pray that you will be with all those who are away, be with Tim and Christy, please be with uh, Dean and his family as they're away at funeral, and we just thank you for your love, and I uh, pray that you be with each one of our friends and loved ones this, this day. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, this week's lesson uh, is entitled, Hope Against Depression. Can't say that... Uh, I've ever felt more underqualified to speak on something, <clears throat> especially when given who the teacher is. But anyways, here we go. Uh, I'd gathered a few pieces of information here off the internet, uh, just kind of gives us a basic framework to work with on depression here. Um, major depressive disorder, also known as recurrent depressive disorder, clinical depression, major depression, unipolar depression, unipolar disorder, is a mental disorder characterized by an ill-encompassing low mood accompanied with low self-esteem and by loss of interest or pleasure in normally enjoyable activities. The cluster of symptoms syndrome uh, was named. Uh, described and classified as one of the mood disorders and the 1980 edition of American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual. The term depression is ambiguous. It is often used to denote this syndrome, but may refer to any or all mood disorders. Major depressive disorder is a disabling condition which adversely affects a person's family, work, or school life, sleeping, eating habits, and general health. So there's our basic clinical definition there. Um, these are some of the symptoms that we uh, would could find associated with uh, depression. Uh, major depression's impact uh, on functioning and well-being has uh, been equated to that of, med- I thought this was pretty interesting, uh, has been equated to that of chronic medical conditions such as diabetes. Um, in other words, its effect can, can come very close to what diabetes effect is. Um, very low mood, inability to experience pleasure in activities that were formerly enjoyed, thoughts and feelings of worthlessness, inappropriate guilt or regret, helplessness, hopelessness, that'll kind of be our focus today is hope, and uh, self-hatred, psychosis, poor concentration and memory, sounds like me, poor concentration and memory, (laughs) (laughs) withdrawal from uh, social situations and activities, thoughts of death or suicide, insomnia, Uh, insomnia affects at least 80% of depressed people. Uh, hypersomnia, which is, of course, oversleeping, uh, can also happen, affecting as much as 15% of people with depression. Fatigue, headaches, digestive problems, uh, appetite uh, decrease. Um, occasionally, uh, also, it can cause appetite increase and weight gain. Um, behavior is, e- is either agitated or lethargic. 
Um, depression may also coexist with attention deficit uh, hyperactivity disorder. Um, older, it says older depre- uh, depressed people may have cognitive symptoms on, of recent onset, such as forgetfulness, and a more noticeable slowing of movements. Depression often coexists with physical disorders common among the elderly, such as strokes, other cardiovascular diseases, Parkinson's, and uh, even COPD. Um, Also, here's a few statistics that go along with this. Um, Apparently, uh, eight percent, I think this comes from 2010 data here, Um, 8% of the population or greater than 15 million people experience depression. Uh, It is estimated by the year 2020, depression will be the second most common health care problem. Second leading cause of death in the world due to increase in incidence every year. This is hypothesized, not current. Um, And uh, let's see, it says women twice as likely as men to have depression at 12%, men uh, 6%. Um, 80% of people with depression are receiving no treatment. That's an interesting statistic there. Uh, And this is the one that really kind of took me off guard. It says preschoolers are the fastest growing market for antidepressants. 4% of preschoolers greater than 1 million are clinically depressed. 23% 23% in depre- uh, what's this say? A 23% increase in depression in children each year. Uh, and it also says, um, another interesting statistic, 54% of people with depression believe it is a personal weakness. And 15% of people with depression will commit suicide. I'm depressed. <laughs> I don't have direct answers here, but um, what, what, what are some ideas y'all might have as to why we see such an increase in depression rate, uh, just kind of generally across the board, what are some ideas y'all have? Exercise. Exercise? That's, that's a or, very good one. Or outside as much. Yeah. Green space, fresh air, sunshine. Yeah. I agree with that. TV does. TV, yeah. That's depressing. The news. The <laughs> news. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You also have to realize that we are genetically flawed. Sure. And as the farther we get away from creation, the more we have the effects of not only our defects of, of genetics, but how we express those genetics. Yep. How might we even be... Uh, uh, subject to being marketed uh, depression. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't watch a news show without seeing some some sort of uh, pharmaceutical advertisement. Uh, you know, do you feel lethargic? Do you feel this kind of, Yeah, that's me. Right. That's my doctor about yeah. that. Right, right after you've come home from a long day at work and right. just watched a depressing news story and then they put the antidepressant on. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> you know, and children... You know, preschoolers are sponges. They see they see mommy and daddy uh, popping pills uh, for for whatever. And they think they, they think about modeling that behavior. Yeah, I like uh, I do like your point, though, Wendell, because it it's not just a software problem; it's a hardware problem as well. Yes, I think in young children, um, 
the absence of parents, you know, that I don't know what the statistics are, but just about every child that's a preschooler it goes to daycare. Right. And that should that would be depressing to a child not to be raised by their own parents. Sure. Yeah, I I, I mean my gut reaction to that was look at the direct result from Satan's attack on the family unit, you know. I mean, that seems to be his one of his biggest attacks in this modern age and, you know, suicide rates and depression and, and all that. It's got to come down to a, a large part, uh, other than genetic reasons and, you know, cultural reasons, uh, also the fact that the family unit has been pretty much destroyed. Um. Yes. Therefore, if you think about the family unit and you think about a child not having the affection maybe that they should have, not having a healthy home environment, you might think of a failure to thrive kind of thing mm-hmm. where, where there's just not that. You see a, a, a little child who's got a loving, happy family and they are just so... They are thriving, mm-hmm. and, and you know they're doing so well in that environment. But something that's really dysfunctional and sad would cause a failure for that and a, a, a sure. bad state of mind in a child. Yeah, uh, just like a plant that requires nutrients and water, and you know all these things that your home environment is part of that equation. And yeah, most definitely. Um, let's go to uh, Sabbaths. Uh, reading here. Uh, I'm just going to kind of read through it, and there's a part at the end there that I'm interested in. Uh, Depression or extreme discouragement to the point of becoming disabled has been experienced since the inception of sin. A number of Bible characters displayed symptoms that probably would meet today's diagnostic criteria for depression. Hopelessness is a symptom of depression, and the biblical message of hope can offer us so much in contrast to a world that offers so little. All people at times face movements of extreme discouragement for any variety of reasons. No wonder, then, that the Word of God is filled with promises that can give us all, no matter our situation, reasons to hope for a better future. If not in this world, then certainly the next. Of course, when depression is severe, it's important to get professional help when possible. The Lord can work through these people to help those who are in need of special care. After all, regardless of your relationship with God, were you physically ill, you would seek the help of a doctor or health professional. It's the same with those who are suffering from clinical depression, which is often caused by by a genetic predisposition and chemical imbalance in the brain. Thus, even Christians at times might need the help of professionals. I, yes? I know back in the church that I came from in New Jersey, one of the pastors preached many times about if you were depressed, you didn't believe in God enough. And I think that's a common thing in our church. And my mother was so depressed, but, oh no, I'm not depressed, to the point that she got really sick. Right. And uh, it is a just as bad as a physical. If if you'll treat your diabetes, right. why won't you treat a mental problem? Exactly. Yes. 
Um, I was a little turned off by that section of the lesson because it spent the whole paragraph saying that, like, well, yeah, you know, it's okay if you need help to, to seek professional help, but it still had this connotation of if it's extreme, you know, if it's really bad. Well, if you have diabetes, you don't wait till you get your foot amputated to start having your diabetes treated, and you shouldn't, with depression either, you shouldn't let it, oh, well, only for Christians in extreme cases should they seek professional help. No, if you have symptoms of depression, then you should be getting help early on. And it shouldn't be the stigma of it's not okay because you have spiritual problems or something like that. So I have yeah. an issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, going kind of off that note, um, what about kind of this perception that as a Christian – since I do know the truth and I do know God and I do read my Bible or all these different things, that I would somehow need less help or less professional help specifically, I guess. We just read the statistic 80% of people are not receiving treatment. Well, you know, I don't know what the statistic is on how many of those are Christian, but I would guess a lot. Um, so, yeah, I mean... What do y'all think? Should, should, and I'm not trying to just throw up a softball question. I mean, seriously, if, if we know the truth, should we need any less assistance? Sharing the diabetes analogy further, both my parents were diabetic. Eight out of my 12 aunts were diabetic. So when I went to see my primary care physician, he said, Wendell, you can either exercise or you can die. And so he gave me a list of things that will make my likelihood of suffering from some of the same ills as my parents a little less likely and delayed in their onset. We have lifestyle issues, which, which is trust in God, exercise, all these other things I've been mentioned that will help us reduce the severity of things. That doesn't mean that we don't need professional help. It doesn't mean that we will not have problems. But it, God has given us lots of information, and trust in divine power is part of that. It's not the only thing. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd like to comment on that, because maybe some of you also, I don't know too much about depression, so I went to the Neil Nedley when he was here a few years ago on depression, and I think he had 12 treatments that they use and he said when we have someone come in for another kind of ailment usually three months is enough to take care of this he said but with depression a six-month treatment is needed and we need to do all 12 of these remedies to see uh, results and I thought that was very impressive that there are a lot of things that can be done but they need to be worked together in constellation let's move on to Sunday it kind of starts out here in uh, Psalm 42 um, and, and, uh, that's, let's, I guess let's go ahead and go to that for a second. Um, turn to Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Any immediate thoughts that stick out to anybody from reading of that passage? I feel like there's a little bit of a struggle back and forth going on. Questions and answers, but maybe not resolution. Sure. When I read it, noticed that in my version here, I've got the net version, it uses depression actually in the verse and uh, like five times. So like I thought perhaps that's why they selected that <laughs> that chapter because it uses actually comes right out and says depression. He says, I am depressed, so I will pray to you while I am trapped here in the region. And uh, and why are you depressed, oh my soul? Um, the lesson kind of tries to portray here, I guess, the struggle going on, um, but it also wants us to kind of draw the, the hope that David is kind of drawing from here, um, from his from his God. He says, uh, uh, for I will again give thanks to my God for his saving intervention. Um, and it says as we move on uh, down toward the bottom, uh, Christians may opt for alternative ways to interpret things a way that incorporates God's plan and messages into the equation. Consider the following alternatives. Um, I kind of wanted to bounce some things off y'all. Kind of take what the traditional, not what we teach within this class per se, but the traditional view that Christianity would take on some of these topics and ask the question, is it really all that much different than what the world believes? starts off here, how to look at yourself. You were created in God's image to rule over creation. God's traits, albeit marred, are still in you. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, rescued you from eternal death and granted you privileges. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. Before God's eyes, you have infinite worth. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like the traditional take here would be that God, as the ruler of the universe, made a set of moral laws. Um, you know, Satan broke these laws, came to earth, deceived Adam and Eve. They broke these laws. Um, uh, but the, as far as referring back to God's image, I think a lot of times God's image gets associated um, and it's very popular in a lot of the modern music to acknowledge God's power and his might and he's ruler over all of creation and 
you know, all these things that we don't argue with, we know that, but that that's the essence of who he is. It's his, it's his position of power that he holds over the, over the creation. So by taking that as a definition of what God's image is, if you turn that to man and he's the reflection of God's image, then all of a sudden we have man in a power position over creation as well because he's supposed to be reflecting what God's doing. If we have God in a top-of-the-power-chain position here, how does that affect our view of him? How does that, cha- how does that define what his image is? And does that have, give a different definition of what it means to rule over creation than perhaps he was really intending there? Because as we see Jesus revealing the Father, God comes to earth and serves mankind. He didn't come and tell them what they needed to do and expect them to live up to it. He came, dwelt among them, served them, and gave of himself to humanity. And I think that if you have this definition of God ruling over and that we're all on this sort of slave level and he's up here, then you have a tendency to... um, to have this mindset that when it goes on and says that God grants us privileges, we're a chosen people, well, that seems to me to sort of lend itself to an elite mindset that others are to serve us and not us to serve others. So I, I kind of feel like the traditional view there of, of God's uh, image, um, maybe it's not so much different than... Satan portrayed it to be at the tree and maybe not so much therefore different than the world actually as a whole kind of makes God out to be. Um, as, we, as we move on to the next section here, it says uh, the world. Uh, it is true that the world is rotten, full of evil. At the same time, there also are many right, noble, and admirable things which to ponder. Furthermore, Christians can understand the existence of evil uh, without despair as they know its origin and ultimate fate. Uh, Again, I kind of feel like the traditional view, as I was starting to say, is God's the lawmaker, Satan's the lawbreaker, he he turns humanity into lawbreakers, and in order for God to be fair and enforce his rules maintain his justice, then God must kill Satan and the wicked and restore a balance of order to the universe. How is that really any different than Islam's view or Hinduism's view? Uh, How is this any different than the karma that supposedly maintains our universe that you get out of, you know, what goes around comes around, you know, you're going to get yours, you're going to get payback. But what if we believe that God designed all life to operate on principles of love and other-centeredness? What if we understand that to seek self and break the laws and principles brings death because life is not designed to run this way? What if we understand that sin carries its own punishment and that God is not somehow balancing uh, out being love and just, being punisher and savior, and that he is not an almighty for lack of a better word, yin-yang, that balancing out the forces in the universe, but rather he's 
a personal friend trying to show us the truth and heal us and bring us back into oneness with his laws and principles of love. If we never view him as a threat, might this change our levels of anxiety? Might this change our view of the world? Might this change our view of him? Might this change our heart? God did not have to impose guilt and anxiety upon Adam and Eve Adam and Eve when they sinned in Eden. That was a byproduct of sin. Right. I mean, I, and I think God wants to protect us from that. I think that's his and that's the that's his dilemma. He that was his situation in dealing with Adam and Eve and, and how he dealt with them, he did not deal with them. In, in, in superimposing those feelings upon them, that was the byproduct of what they had done of sin. Sure. Well, wasn't that their choice? Like, they, they had one rule in the Garden of Eden that was not to eat of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they went ahead and did. They went against his orders. So wouldn't those feelings be the consequence of their actions? Sure. Because God cannot say no to his own law. Right, I would I would agree with that. You're saying that like because everything has a cause and effect, then them straying outside of what he designed had its own negative effect on them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because they ultimately were supposed to die. Right. Because they because they broke the law of love and trust in God. That was their choice to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. He, and he did not set up the system to work that way. And when they, right, you're right. When they broke the, it, that was the ultimate. I think the traditional view there would be, though, that when we talk about after eating the fruit and them, uh, you know, the, with the, with the, where it says, you shall surely die, that, that God just sort of withheld carrying it out. Rather than that, because they broke the law that that would carry its own punishment and eventually lead to death, God is withholding the natural consequences of what it will inevitably happen in order to give them a chance to repent and turn back to Him. I think very often it's viewed as that, um, well, He just delayed His punishment, it's coming, rather than that He's holding back what's going to happen on its own. Well, you know, the way it's written is it says the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to die that day. Right. It just means that, you know, that from that time on, you've just set something in motion that's ultimately going to culminate with your death. Right. The you death know, process had started. Right. It's just like, it's like what Jesus told to the people on the cross. You know, you shall be with me. I'm telling you today you should be with me in paradise. It doesn't mean that you'll be with me in paradise today. It just means I'm telling you today that that's what's going to happen. Right. Right. We also need to understand and remember that when, when God speaks of death, he, he's talking about a final end, a, a complete termination, uh, a nevermore uh, of existence. Um, he's not talking about the sleep that Adam and Eve laid down and went to sleep in, um, you know, without, almost a thousand years after they, after they ate the fruit. Um, he's talking about a, a complete finality of death. Right. His definition of death and humanity's definition of death are often different. And and this concept is very foreign to the whole world that right. there is a finality, that there is not a, a consciousness that will carry on throughout all eternity, whether you're in the good place or the bad place. Right. And that, that 
was that was fundamental to the lie that, that Satan told me. Right. You know, he, he, and Satan has been promising immortality if you just followed his ways and methods and principles ever since. Right. Also, uh, moving on to the next one, the future. What a wonderful future is reserved for God's children. The Bible is full of promises with assurance of salvation. And this kind of goes back to what I had said uh, earlier about God's character, that if we view God as the master at the high, high position and we're the slaves and whatever, then we view God as demanding service to himself, and then when we're one of his children, we demand service to ourselves. Well, if that's our view, then heaven is simply a place where we attain. We are going to get a mansion. We are going to get a crown. People are going to serve us, these kind of things, rather than the other way around. We're, uh, yes, we're going to get those things, but we're going to be servants to all of God's creation. This is This is what... God intends is us for us all to be servants, not be receivers and be on high in these elite positions here. Um, let's see here. Lost my spot. Um, uh, the all, of course, the alternative uh, view to this is, is if we view as a relationship, if we if we view eternal life, God, uh, Jesus says that this is eternal life to know me. Um, it's a relationship experience, and, it, and, and God doesn't describe heaven and eternal life so much as things of attainment, uh, but rather uh, getting to know him on a deeper level. Uh, if, we, if we view heaven as not a destination, but a relationship experience that begins now and forever and gets better and better, a place of giving rather than a place of receiving, perhaps this would make a difference in our view of eternity and perhaps it would give us a hope that is not quite as shallow as the original offering that we're traditionally given. Let's move on to Monday. We're going to see here that they're going to give us biblical symptoms here. Uh, somebody take Psalms 31.10. Uh, Psalm 77.4. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sigh. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. I pulled out of there. Pain, failing, strength, brittle bones. Interesting side note here. I've pulled up a little piece of uh, off the internet. It says, research carried out among thousands of people has shown a clear connection between depression and a loss of bone mass leading to osteoporosis and fractures. This was revealed by Hebrew University of Jerusalem researchers, I can't say their names, head of Brain and Behavior Laboratory. Uh, but interesting, um, you know, the, that there's science to support uh, osteoporosis from depression. Um, Psalm 77.4. It keeps me awake all night. I am so worried that I cannot speak. I get the picture of not only insomnia, but a level of anxiety that takes your breath away almost there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read Psalms 102, 4, and 5. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In my distress, I groan aloud and am reduced to skin and bones. 
heart problems, poor appetite, anxiety, losing weight. First uh, Kings 19.4, suicidal... Uh, I'm sorry, I was reading my answer before I read the text. While he himself <laughs> went a day's journey into the, into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had long enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So we see suicidal ideations here. Um, so we see quite a few examples of biblical texts supporting our list of, cl- of uh, clinical uh, symptoms to go along with our diagnosis. Um, question. How do you think sharing our pain with others, whether it be through professional counseling or just a trusted friend, how do you think sharing our pain, our struggles, can contribute to our healing? It's important to acknowledge this pain that you have. I can describe the time that I was in severe depression after Tim's dad died. Uh, All these things are true. One thing I found was disorganization, too. You just, uh, widows are told not to sell their house the first year. I did go, I would call Tim sometime and say, I wanted to. I don't want to talk to my son, I want to talk to the psychiatrist. And his whole demeanor would change. I mean, it's like, hi, Mom, what are you doing? Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) And and one time he told me that uh, it feels like you're in a deep forest and you just can't get out. And you're in the center of it and there's thorns and stuff, but slowly you start winding a way out. And... You get out once in a while, but then you're back in, but you're not as deep, and you've made a path, and you get out more often. After I went for uh, therapy with a group therapy, I went and I became a facilitator, and I taught grief therapy at Memorial Hospital for a while. Uh, It's important to tell the story of how they died, because that helps the more you can tell it, the more you can accept it. I encourage any of you that are in any trouble to find somebody that you can trust and tell the story of what is happening because you have to accept it before you can handle it and heal from it. And it takes a lot of hard work on your part, a lot of repeating the good things you've been told by the group that you've, the group leaders that you have gone to or your psychologist. Uh, It takes quite a while to work through the things. You'll have good days where you feel up, like you're on top of the wave, and then you'll have days where you've uh, fallen off the board again. But it comes and it goes, but I can promise you, it does get better. But you, you don't just sit there in the hole and expect it'll get better. You have to work on it. You have to get your exercise. You have to get your therapy to go on. But it will, and you have to have the hope. And you don't let go of God. But I can tell you, if somebody had come to the funeral, uh, it's not real helpful to just go in. Sometimes a hug. I'm sorry. You believe in God, it's going to be okay. That doesn't work. You believe in God, that doesn't work. So anyway, as Tim's mom, I can tell you that he went through a lot, and I did too when his dad died. Well, I can echo all of that. Uh... My my father died in uh, my last year of nursing, uh, and uh, and uh, 
I, I came back. The I sat out a semester because it happened toward the beginning of the semester. And when I came back in the January of the semester, all I could, all I wanted to do was just sit in my room. You know, I, I didn't even want to go to class. I just, I just sat there. I, I couldn't make myself move to some degree. Um, sometime later down the line, after I graduated, um, I took a hospice position, and um, that contributed to my healing process more than anything I've done in my life to this point because I was dealing with the source of my pain, coming to an acceptance point of it, and somehow being able to give back to that gives you more than you can give. And and I remember uh, my my dad had written several letters to me because he was dying of cancer and he knew that that he was going to die, so he had written some cards and letters to me to give at certain points throughout my life, and I remember my mom gave me one one day. The first few times I had opened them, I'd totally lose it, you know. But after a year of hospice, I was able to open the card, and I was happy to see it and, re- and read it, and I just couldn't believe the change that had taken place within me just from dealing with it on a day-in and day-out basis like that, not running from it and that sort of thing. Russ? Uh, first of all, thank you for the surfing metaphor, Peggy. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but with this last text you read regarding Elijah, um, you know, depressed to the point where he's just ready to give up and die, later on in the chapter, this is a beautiful chapter, it talks about, you know, he, he makes a trip to the mountain, and then there's the wind and the fire and the earthquake, and God is not in any of those uh, uh, it, uh, displays of power, but he's in the still small voice, and and he asks Elijah, "Why are you here?" And Elijah says, "Well, you know, I'm the only one." He's his focus is almost entirely on himself. He's depressed because he thinks he's the only one slaving for the cause of God. And God says, "Take it easy. I have seven thousand of my own children who have not bowed down to Baal." Uh, and and this this knowledge, and but in both of your, your examples, the idea of getting out and and kind of removing the focus from yourself and, and starting to uh, look at the benefit of others uh, was very healing for, for you both. Right. Uh, and same thing with Elijah. He realized that he was not alone, and, and so he started, he decided to you know, continue his life of service. Yeah, very good point, Russell. And that uh, heads right into the next, to the next uh, thing I was going to bring up here. Uh, it says, uh, or I was going to ask, what, what would seeing outside ourselves help reverse the depression? Um, this is an article that Brittany had sent me, and I didn't put down where it came from, unfortunately, but I can find that out because I have it in my email. Um, it says, uh, this is in reference to the increase in the depression trends. Why the sudden increase? Um, It is a fact that we have basic emotional needs that must be met for us to thrive and enjoy life. After the primary human needs for food, water, shelter, uh, and shelter come commonly shared emotional and physical needs. Without exception, we find depressed people are not getting these needs met. Traditional communities naturally meet many basic needs for emotional support. In the traditional Amish society in the, US made, in the U.S., major depression is almost unknown, as it is in the, in the equally traditional Kaluli tribe of New Guinea. 
In these societies, individual concerns are group concerns and vice versa. You know that if you have a problem, other people will help you. And you are expected to help, uh, help out when others need support. We know we are meant to do these things, but it's not a a built-in feature of modern society in the same way. These days, we are much more self-focused. The idea of considering a wider community to be important than the self is almost impossible to understand for most people. What do you all think of that? One of the things that she touched on earlier is you have to find a safe person to tell these things to has to be a safe person. I think there are there have been less and less safe places to go in society. People have gotten hurt, and so even within the church, and they draw back in, and so they become, you know, self-contained, if you will, and they just suffer alone because they don't know where to go. This is especially true with with abuse within families. You know, even women who've tried to go to pastors and have been told. Oh, that can't be true. He's my head elder, kind of thing, you know. And they draw into themselves. So hope, which you're trying to focus on here, is lost because they've tried. They've gone this way. They've gone that way. Nothing works, and so they end up just encapsulating themselves with no nowhere to go. Yep. I think in reference to that, you know, maybe on a more positive note and keeping the hope alive is that we need to be those people to each other and to the people around us where they know that we are a safe person that they could come to or they could talk to and, you know, reach out and, and help each other. Um, otherwise, there is no hope because, you know, like we've said already, it is extremely helpful to have faith in God, and I think certainly um, it, it helps depression to have the hope and faith in God but he created us to need community and to need each other and for us to help each other through things and so if we do draw into ourselves and there isn't anybody safe to go to then naturally um, it's not going to get any better and so you know we need to of course be the change and and seek out people and help them and be the safe people that they can come to if they're having a problem well said I was I was thinking about um for me, whenever I was by myself and went through a really, really dark time, in a busy world, there's not a lot of people that are available, mm-hmm. like your wife is saying. And what really helped me is after a couple of years, when I finally decided I was just going to have to come out, <laughs> and I, I started going to um, the singles group. And, and that is a really great ministry because there's, <coughs> there's community and that community has something that's really healing about it. And that just, when you, when you develop friendships and when you're around people and, and when you have a group of people that you keep seeing over and over again, it, it just really makes a big difference in, you know, in what you're going through and helps you go through a lot of dark times. Is it possible that our definition of a church is quite out of whack um is it possible that rather than church being a large building with weekly services elaborate music church socials uh that church is actually you and me a group of individuals uh that give to one another and take ownership for each other's struggles 
we have different personalities. In this room, we have a, a great variety of personalities. And different personalities respond differently to uh, external influences. Some people have wonderful coping mechanisms. Some people have no coping mechanisms. They just fall flat on their face. Other people can, can handle trauma much better than the average. And, and it, it, it seems to me that, that uh, uh, how we respond is not only our Christian belief, because we're, hopefully we're all more or less have the same Christian belief, sure. but I, I guarantee that we would all respond a bit differently to the same stimulus, <laughs> be it good or bad. And um, I, I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, and, and we all have highs and lows, um, but I, I, I do know that being around some people is a bummer. They're just <laughs> down <laughs> yeah. And, and um, uh, you know, so it, you tend to shy away from them. And, yet, and then there are others who are friendly and outgoing and, and, uh, and wonderful to be with. So it seems to me that personality <laughs> styles or, or, or types enter into our, our uh, response to uh, Sure. Well said. In that same vein, churches have different personalities. My home church has about 60 members. I lost my first husband about three years ago. And my church family came to my aid. And Amen. three girlfriends that just walked me through that time. And uh, some would even call on the phone and say, one especially, how are you doing? And we'd talk for a while. And then she'd say, how are you really doing? You know, to get to the core of the matter of how I really was. Somebody you can really open up with and have that trust. So it's great. It was wonderful. If we were to live in an environment such as you're describing where people took ownership for one another and each other's struggles, yeah. could perhaps that in itself bring a sense of hope, restore a positive outlook on life and and lead us back to the ultimate example of where it all comes from, Jesus. Moving on to Tuesday's lesson, Relief from Depression. I'm going to read uh, Psalm 39 here. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in summer, as the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Uh, what happened here when David remained silent? What was the con kind of consequences or effects of him holding it in? 
says, uh, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Uh, but anyways, I have down the, the, you know, his frustration level grew, his anxiety intensified. And as a result of opening up, as a result of being transparent, uh, not being ashamed of his struggles, of his weaknesses, um, when he shared his struggles with God, that's when he found his hope. Um, it says, nevertheless, it is important for anyone going through hard time who feels discouraged or even depressed to have someone trustworthy they can talk with. So you can see here how perhaps our view of God might have a profound effect on this because if we don't trust the chief, then how are we going to trust anyone else? Um, but it can be a starting point, st- trusting an individual who who comes to you. Um, let's read uh, Psalm fifty-five, seventeen. This is a very hopeful verse here. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. The promise here is that God hears us all the time. There's no, there's, there's no time, time off, per se, for God. It's any time is a good time. Uh, at the bottom it says, uh, Ellen White descri- once described prayer as the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Moving on here to Wednesday, uh, we see here in Psalms 32, 1 through 5, David says here, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and, you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. How did David find relief for his agony? David uncovered his wrongdoing and confessed. So in this scenario, what finally allowed God to forgive David? Was it? I think this is a really big area. Because if you think, if your picture of God is such that you feel when you have done something wrong, that he's standing over you, shaking his finger, pointing his finger at you, condemning you, harsh towards you, and that certain legal measures have to be taken in order for him to be able to stand and look at you, <laughs> you are going to hate yourself. Right. But if you have a picture of God where you see that when you're in trouble, when you've messed up with your life or, or whatever the circumstance might be, like today we've talked about loss, with people who've lost things and grieved that way. But it's really important to realize that when you are a mess, Whenever your mess is created by yourself, then you see God storming from heaven and coming because he wants to heal and restore and he wants to bring hope and encouragement and he wants to wrap his arms around you and love you in the midst of all your trouble. That has a healing effect that can help you to be able to be truthful with yourself, to be able to get out of the despairing situation that you're in. Yes. I thought it was interesting in Wednesday's lesson where it says when we meet sufferers of depression, we must be extremely careful not to blame them for not having confessed their sins, nor should we simply conclude that they're wicked people and that's why they're in distress. It's unfortunate that many people seem to be able to offer concern and understanding to those suffering from an organic malady, true clinical depression, but tend to be quite judgmental in dealing with mental or emotional turmoil brought about by their own wrong wrong actions. And sometimes people in the church do mess up, and they Mm -hmm. want to come to people and get help with it, but they're shunned because they've messed up. 
and you know we should be there helping them through right. just like God wants to heal us we should be helping them with whatever it is that they're going through even if it's, they cause it themselves Amen. yes going back to the children we're wondering why the percentages are so high I mean in my mind there's no question because when, when most kids are being told, stop that, quit, sit down, be quiet, don't do this, you're, you're a bad kid, so to speak, they don't have hope. Right. And where do they go for hope except to the parent who in that stage of their life is like God to them. And so they learn to see God through the eyes of what they're seeing in their parents who are giving them no hope, no choices no way of being of value in their life. That's tremendously depressing. Sure. Absolutely. Well, we've also made a big mistake in our culture in thinking that parents have to raise their children alone. I just, I think back before we heard all this stuff about child abuse, back when my husband and I were young, married, and we're living in a house, we used to have all the neighborhood kids practically there, over there all the time. And these were kids who came from bad families, lots of messed up stuff. There was a little 10-year-old girl who spent most of her days with me and her mother's boyfriend. She'd come over there in the middle of the night and say, you need to call the police. My mother's boyfriend is beating her and stuff. I don't know if you dare to do that now, to have all those kids from all these families. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't live in that kind of neighborhood anymore. But I think that our home was a real refuge for those children. And even though we were just neighbors, and, and I think in the old days, a lot of that kind of stuff went on, and now everybody's too afraid to do it. So moving back to the kind of confession process, we see here that what actually changes in the confession process is not God's stance toward us, but rather that God can't take our baggage if we don't give it to him. And until we admit that it's there, until we admit it's a weakness, until we admit it's a problem until we let go of it with our kung fu grip. <laughs> he can't take it. He's not going to force us to let go of it. A couple sections here I'm going to read in, in closing. This was from out of the teacher's edition, kind of moving on. So how do we get the focus off of ourselves and begin the, the process of healing? The lesson kind of gives the idea of devotions. It says, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, prioritized his devotional life so much that not even exhaustion would prevent him from rising early and seeking the presence of the Father. In celebration of discipline, author Richard Foster writes, In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire things he desires, to love things he loves, to will the things he wills, progressively we are taught to see things from his point of view prayer is the most intimate means by which god shares himself with humanity interesting quote here also uh that kind of gives us some perspective on jesus's day uh it says consider this in luke 18 1 jesus spoke a parable to his disciples and said men always ought to pray not and not lose heart did, uh, did you know that during the time of Christ, it was taught that three times a day was optimal amount of time to seek God? Anything more than that was thought to weary God. <laughs> At the end of um, Wednesday's lesson, there was a statement that I think needs to be expanded on based on your comments today. It says, we can't undo the past. What we can do by God's grace is to seek and learn from the past mistakes and to whatever degree possible, make restitution for whatever wrong we have done. After all, all we can do is surrender to God, seek His mercy, grace, and healing. 
But as you have demonstrated in your own life with the hospice work and whatnot, grace and healing involves service for others. Yes. It's not just sitting there praying to God and say, heal me, heal me, heal me. The, as we have talked about before in this class, the circle of love is giving. Right. And without the outreach in giving, we are not healed ourselves. Yep. Yep. And that goes uh, pretty well in here with my last point. Uh, on Friday's lesson, um, it's is a section taken out of Desire of Ages, page 685. As he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. He often visited this spot for mediation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrow as upon this night of his last agony. Throughout his life on earth, he had walked in the light of God's presence. When in conflict with men who were inspired by the very spirit of Satan, he could say, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. But now he seemed to be shut out of the light of God's sustaining presence. Now he was numbered with the transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dread, so dreadful does sin appear to him, so great is the weight of guilt which he must bear, and he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his father's love. Feeling how terrible the wrath of God against transgression, he explains, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Uh, not only do I feel like this shows a very good example of what the wrath of God actually is, is that feeling of isolation and aloneness, the, the, all the guilt and everything that comes along with that when we're cut off from God. Of course, in this instance, it was, it was Jesus' emotions making him feel this way um, and Satan's persecution of him, of course. But um, I think this undergirds the idea that isolation equals hopelessness and it's not until we become involved with our fellow church members, our, our fellow community, our neighbors, our friends, and truly do God's will and serve others that we begin to feel that sense of restoration and that, that change that occurs when, we're, when we give to others. Um, I, closing thought here. As our lesson has shown, when we isolate ourselves and stagnate, and eventually we will die. But when we empty our burdens to Christ, he fills us with his love, and we are able to do the same for others. This is the hope that conquers depression. Amen. Dear Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us um, as we all leave this room today. Um, undoubtedly, there, there are some of us in this room that are dealing with uh, feelings of hopelessness, and are at a low point maybe this week or just in our life in general. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us refocus on your son Jesus, that we could see that all that you have given to us, that you would fill us full of your love and that we could surrender all of our baggage and all of our problems to you, that you will, you will make our yoke light and that we will be able to go forward and do the same for others. I pray that you will be with everyone in this room this week and that your Holy Spirit will speak to them in that calm, still voice that we discussed earlier. I thank you for these things, and I thank you for everyone in this room. In your name we pray. Amen.